Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. Well, good morning. We are uh, in our series uh, on the book of Acts. We call this the church. The church is the main feature in the book of Acts, and uh, we are... Uh, I don't know how many parts we're into this, but we're just uh, kind of moving through this, uh, this incredible book. And uh, we're so grateful for everybody that's going to be listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And also, right now, Facebook Live is listening to us. Let's give our Facebook Live community a hand. Thank you for tuning in today. And we're so glad that you're with us during this service. I want to say a special welcome to Sonia Hughes from Amarillo, Texas. Uh, Sonia is a regular Facebook listener, and she lives in Amarillo, Texas, and uh, recently heard from uh, Sandra, so Sonia, so Sonia, so good to have you listening today. Thank you for listening way down in Texas. So um, we're looking at uh, different parts of the book of Acts, and today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 8 uh, has, uh, has four different characters in the book of of uh, uh, chapter 8 of, of the book of Acts. And there's four different characters. And so I want to read uh, the, uh, the text. We're going to read a little bit of it. We're not going to do all of chapter 8 today. Uh, we're going to just kind of like dive in and get started on the first part of the book, uh, the chapter, rather. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 says this, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. That is the death of Stephen. And of course, Saul later becomes Paul. So that's important to us to remember. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Gentile name. He's going to be ministering to Gentiles. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Judea, Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so that there was great joy in the city. So in um, chapter 8 of the book of Acts, there's four different characters, main characters, each one of these characters has a unique sort of a feature about them that we're going to look at. We've got Saul, who is the first person we meet, and Saul later becomes Paul, and Saul, who is the persecutor of the church, becomes the greatest preacher in the church. So interesting. He's going to, he's going to take the, the main spotlight for the, uh, uh, as we get toward the end of Acts. Actually, Acts chapter 12, uh, it, Peter's sort of the focus, and then Acts chapter 13. Through the rest of the books, Paul becomes the main person. And just this little sidebar, isn't it incredibly cool that the greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest preacher? Isn't it amazing that the man who tried to destroy the church became the greatest church planner of the church. So it's an incredible story. So we meet Saul, 
And then we meet uh, Philip, who's, Philip is one of the uh, seven uh, deacons that were chosen in chapter 6 to take care of the widows. He was mentioned right after Stephen, and so we meet, meet Philip. Philip's an incredible guy. Then we meet this guy named Simon the Magician, and he's kind of an odd guy. We're going to meet him next week and talk about this kind of strange person. And finally, we meet the uh, Ethiopian eunuch at the end of the chapter who is hungry for God and comes to Jerusalem to one of the Jewish feasts. So four people we see in Acts chapter 8, and each of them has something that we can learn from. And so when we look at these people, you know, it's kind of interesting to watch them and to look at the kind of people that they were. I don't know if you ever kind of go around and, and, you know, sit at the mall and watch people. Isn't that a fun thing to do? What a great recreational thing to do, to sit around at the mall and watch people walk by. Do you do that? Isn't that incredibly interesting? Because people are weird, and they're odd, and they're interesting. So you can sit there and just watch people walk by. Karen and I were uh, on our date on Friday. We were down to Rehoboth. We ate at the Green Turtle on the boardwalk, and there's a little balcony there. We had lunch and got to see, you know, the ocean was absolutely beautiful, and we just had a really, really wonderful time. And so uh, after we got done eating, we walked down the boardwalk a little bit, and we got to uh, where Dolly's Popcorn is, and there was one of those vacant white benches so we sat down and we just watched people for a while. There's this old guy walking by wearing a bathing suit. Must have been 25 years old. You know, it was all faded. And he had, you know, socks on up to his, you know, knees and, and tennis shoes on. And I said to Karen, if I ever dress like that, lock me in the house. Then there's these, these, these young families. They got their little children, and the children are sucking their brains out. And you can see these young families. They're just fried. They got these little kids running everywhere, and they're trying to keep the kids under control. And I just said, thank God that's not us anymore. Now, I don't know why, but Friday there was all these Amish people that were there. It must have been a bus trip from Lancaster. All these Amish people walking on the boardwalk. And we just watched people. It was just really, really interesting to watch people. You can always learn something by watching folks. And when we look at Acts chapter 8, where where we watch these four different people in the book, and they have these interesting things about them. And I want to just take a little bit of time as we slow down a little bit in the book of Acts and look at look at these four people in the in chapter eight of, of Acts. And, uh, and you know the first person I came to was Saul, and I've been so interested. I've read books about Paul. I've read a lot about him, and I'm really interested in Saul. But when I meet him, the first time you meet Paul, he's totally different than what he later is like. But when you meet him in the beginning of Acts chapter eight, I think that Saul is very angry. He's angry, and he's ferocious, and he's intense, and he's, and he's grabbing people that are Christians. And, he's, and it says the language, the adjectives that are used about Paul are very interesting because the Bible says that he drags men and women and puts them in prison. He's dragging people. He's grabbing a hold of people. And he's not just grabbing men. He's taking women, and he's putting women in, in prison. Women. That needs breaking up families, and there's, there's mothers that are in prison and can't take care of their kids because Paul hates the church. And he's filled with intensity, and he's angry, and he's frustrated, and he's going from house to house. He's systematic. He's on a mission, and he's trying to smash and destroy the church. The language is not 
harassment. He's not harassing the church. He wants to destroy the church. He hates the church. That's how he is when we first meet him, and he's angry. I don't know if you've ever met anybody that's angry, if you've been around somebody that's angry, if you've ever been angry. If you've ever been around somebody that they're just like a, they're like a volcano, they just go off. And they're angry and, they're, and they're, they're dangerous to be around because you get all of these things that they, that they do and so you don't know what to do or what to say around them and you walk on eggshells because they're so unpredictable. So you, you've got people like that that you have to watch out for. And that's how Saul was. Saul was angry. He was abusive. He was abusive. He was angry. He was, he was really deranged. He had a lot of problems. So my question is, what made Saul mad? And I think if I can understand why Saul was so mad, maybe it will help me. Maybe it will help you deal with your anger. Because I bet that somebody here, you've had some anger issues at time and you've gotten mad. Maybe How many could raise your hand and say, I know somebody that's gotten angry before. I know somebody. It may be you, but you're just ready. I know somebody. Well, I think, you know, there's some reasons maybe Saul was angry. But I think one of the reasons is, is that he had a vision of what the world was supposed to be like. And what he saw happening in front of him did not match the vision in his mind. There was a gap between what Paul thought the world was supposed to be like and what these Christians were doing. I think that Saul was an idealist. I think he had in his mind, the world is supposed to be this way, things are supposed to be this way, and they're not this way. And these Christians are messing up my vision of what the world's supposed to be like. In Saul's mind, he saw a world where... Everybody was perfectly Jewish, where twice a day they would quote the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, that twice a day every Jew would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He believed that every person should say that twice a day. And here are these Christians, they're preaching about Jesus. They're not talking about Deuteronomy. They're not talking about the Shema. They're preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And what they're doing doesn't match the ideal in his head. He believed that twice a day that all Jewish people would quote the Decalogue. The Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. And so they would recite the Ten Commandments twice a day, just the way they would quote the Shema. They would go to synagogue and they would study the Torah and they would go to the temple. That's what he thought the world was supposed to be like. Here were these people in front of him that were living completely different than what he thought they should live like. And his vision of the world was not being lived out in front of him. And he got angry. Now, there's an insight here, I think, to where anger comes from. Anger comes from our belief and how we believe things should be and how things are. And when things aren't the way we think they should be, we can get angry. We can get angry because the world that we want, the world that we think should happen, doesn't happen in front of us, and so we get angry. 
It can happen as, as, as little as, as your day, your, the day that you're, you, know, you're, you're, you, you're, you plan your day. You, you have this perfect day planned out. And you want the day to go a certain way. Have you ever had your day planned out? You're going to do this and you're going to do that. And then after that, you're going to go to the beach and you're going to sit on the beach for a while. And, and after that, you're going to do this. And you've got this little day planned and, and you've just been looking forward to this day being this way. So you've got this little vision of how the day's supposed to go. And then your day gets hijacked by things you can't control. How many has that ever happened to you? I know it's happened to everybody that's a mother. You know, you got your day planned. You want your day to be a certain way. And then all of a sudden... Things happen that you didn't plan. And here's what we have to learn about life. We have to learn if we're rigid about things, we're going to be filled with stress. If you're rigid about your day, if you're rigid about how things are supposed to go, then you're going to be filled with stress. Rigidity leads to stress and pressure. Flexibility, where I learn to be flexible, where I learn to go with the flow when I need to, leads to peace. So if you're a rigid person, like Paul, Paul was a rigid person, and rigid people get mad, and rigid people get angry. He was rigid. When I was uh, on uh, vacation a couple weeks ago, uh, I was down to the Outer Banks with my family, and Karen was there, and the kids were there, and their wives, and the grandkids, and we had this great time, and, and I drove separate because I preached on Sunday, and they all went down on Saturday, so I went down to the Outer Banks, and, uh, and so I was driving home alone on Saturday. People left different times on Friday, and then Karen was in a car driving home and I, on Saturday, and I was in a car driving home on Saturday. And I had the best time driving home, best time driving home. It was, I look, always look forward to that ride home. I'm usually by myself in the car, and I have Spotify, listen to some podcasts, listen to some music, and I, had, uh, I stopped in Virginia Beach, had my Starbucks coffee, so I got, you know, the coffee that uh, we'll be drinking in heaven. I had that. And I'm cruising in my truck, and I got music on, and I'm having the best time. And I get to Pocomo, uh, where I turn to go to 113. I turned on 113 so I could go to Berlin, and then from Berlin to, to Millsboro. And I turned on 113. I'm listening to Spotify, and I got my coffee, and everything's good. The sun's shining. I got a vision because I'm going to get home. I usually have to work on Saturdays. So I'm going home. I'm going to cut the grass. I'm going to watch college football like normal people. That's my plan. So I'm riding home. And I get to Snow Hill. And there's a detour. A detour. These big flashing detour signs. Putting me through Snow Hill. Now I've never been through Snow Hill. And I'm afraid if I go through Snow Hill. Nobody's ever going to see me again. Or ever hear from me again. I don't know anything about Snow Hill. I'm going down these little, these little streets, and I'm like, where is this place? And I'm all, you know, kind of, and I can feel my blood pressure going up because it wasn't something I expected. And I'm here to say I made it, and here I am. I made it through Snow Hill. Got back out on 113. Coming to church this morning. Coming to church from Millsboro this morning. There was a detour on the way to Gumber. Was that still out there for you guys in the second service? You know, is not Gumber hard enough to get to? I'm telling you, I think, you know, how hard is it to get people to drive to church on, to Gumber on Sunday and they got a detour? And I'm running late this morning. I'm the preacher. I'm running late. I'm getting there. Oh, my gosh, a detour. So blood pressure went up, and I was really fired up in the first service. I'm going to fire it up, you know. 
You know, the book of James says, don't say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that tomorrow. Say, I'm going to do this if it's the Lord's will. In other words, James says in chapter 2, he said of James chapter 2, he's saying, write your plans in pencil because the Lord may want to change your plans. It does not mean we don't plan. It does not mean that we do not have an agenda for the day. It just simply means that when something changes in our day, we need to be flexible because if you're not flexible and you're rigid, you'll get mad. And sometimes people get, have you ever been, now this is getting real close to home. We may have to give an altar call after this point. Have you ever coming down on 24 on uh, Friday night and you get in a traffic jam and you're trying to get back to Millsboro and you're in a traffic jam all the way back to Mount Air. And those of you that are local know what that is. You're all the way back there. And you're thinking, where are all these people coming from? And you're getting all frustrated. Listen, don't in life, don't be surprised when you have detours. Be surprised when you don't have detours. Detours are part of life. Rigid people get angry because they're not flexible. They have a vision. This is what it's supposed to be, and it's not that way, and so they get mad. This week, I had a busy week. I had a lot going on, and great week. Love what I do. Love you guys. Love my whole life. I got the best life in the world. And, and, uh, but this week was a little busy. I had um, taken a graduate class, and I had this complicated paper to write, and, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm getting ready for speaking and I had staff meetings and stuff going on and so Thursday I had Thursday planned out I had to do a lot of writing on Thursday and and you know and get my deal done and I had stuff to read and all that so middle Thursday I get a call from a guy I haven't seen in 40 years there's a guy I went to high school with we graduated from high school in 1976 from Seaford High School he called me he said my my mom died and he said I don't you know, he knew I was a Jesus person, loved Jesus, and he now knew I was a pastor. He didn't know who to call. So he called me and wants me to do his mom's funeral. And it's like, it was like before lunchtime he called. And I said, you know, I'd be glad to do that. I'll be glad to help you out. I, I don't know your mom at all. So, you, you know, can you get you and your dad and, your, and your, some of your family come over? And so they came over that afternoon. We sat around the table for two hours. And, and uh, my friend from high school told me about his mom. And tears rolling down his face. And then his daughter, the granddaughter, told us about the grandmom, how she virtually raised her. And then the husband told me all about his wife of over 66 years of being married together. And after that was all over with, I got up. And these non-Jesus people, these people that don't go to church as far as I know, my buddy from 40 years, I haven't seen him since high school, since we graduated, He came over and he gave me a big hug and tears in his eyes and said, thank you so much for helping me. Sometimes, sometimes the unplanned things in life are the most important things. Say it with me. Sometimes the unplanned things in life are the most important things. Karen used to teach me this when we were raising our kids, when the boys were growing up. You know, I'm kind of a task-oriented person. I got stuff to do and she said, uh, she said, you know, we need to tune in when the boys want to talk when they're teenagers, when they're adolescents. She said, we just need to, you know, because you can't sit your kids down and have a talk with them because that doesn't work. But every once in a while, they kind of open up and they want to talk. And, and Karen said, listen, look for those moments. And she was great at it. 
So just slow down and just put everything down and talk to them. And I saw her do it time and time again. She would be tucking boys in bed and tuck Tim in bed and sit on the edge of bed and Tim just start talking about the day. And she'd just sit there and listen to him 25, 30 minutes because it was a moment that just opened up. She tried that with Joel sitting out on the edge of the bed, and Joel said, Mom, is there something you want? He asked her that. He wasn't quite sure about that. That didn't quite work for him. <laughs> Say this with me. Flexibility leads to peace. Rigidity leads to stress. Jesus said, he said, don't put new wine into old wineskins. Wineskins were made out of animal skins in those days, and after they were used for a long time, they got hard and brittle, and they wouldn't give and wouldn't flex anymore. If you poured new wine in there, and then when the wine began to ferment, it would crack the, the wineskin open. And Jesus said, you got to be like a, a new wineskin. New wineskin was very flexible and could stretch. Important to do that. We get angry when our day doesn't go the way we want it to go. We get angry sometimes when people aren't the way we think they should be. We have an ideal in our mind of what people are supposed to be like, and so we see people a certain way, and when they're not living up to that ideal, we get angry, we get frustrated with them. That's what Paul was doing to the Christians. He was angry and frustrated because they weren't living up to the way he thought they should live, and so he had this, this gap between how he thought they should be and what they really were. So you get this guy who's an introvert, and he marries this extrovert. And he's attracted to her because she's vivacious and outgoing and fun and talkative, and so they get married. And his vision of what's going to be like when they get married, he's going to come home from work. And she's going to be, she's going to be home a little early, have dinner all ready for him, the table all set. He's going to sit down, they're going to have dinner together. Then after they clean up the dishes, they're going to sit on the couch and they're going to watch the ball game. And she's going to curl up beside him and she's only going to talk at appropriate times. <laughs> this is the vision he has of the person he's married to. It's a fool's vision, but that's the vision he has. So what really happens is when he comes home, she's not home yet. Because she went to the gym and she met some girlfriends in the parking lot. They got talking. Then they went out for coffee. And she, she finally comes home and she throws something together for dinner. And then she says, hey, there's a party. Let's go out to this party with all these couples. He's a homebody. So he gets mad. Because there's a gap between what he thinks she's supposed to be and what she is. And he gets angry. Or you got a friend. Or you work with somebody. Or you got someone in your family. You've got a vision of how they're supposed to respond to you. And you see it a certain way. And because you see it a certain way. And there's a gap between what they are and what you see. And you get mad. That's where anger comes from. Expectations that aren't fulfilled. Here's the most helpful thing I may say today to you. Is... Give up the fool's errand of trying to change another person. 
Do not try to change people. Why would you put that burden on yourself? Why would you saddle yourself with an impossible task of trying to change people that you cannot change? It's freedom not having to change people anymore. It's wonderful. The bombshell theory uh, 12-step programs says this, I can change no one by direct action. Others have a tendency to change as I change. Say it with me. I can change no one by direct action. Others have a tendency to change as I change. I see my, some of my friends and some of my congregates, members of our church, that you got grown kids and you're, they're 25 and they're 30 years old and they're, you're, trying to, you're trying to pull the strings and trying to change them and trying to work on all that and it's just driving you crazy and you're not getting anywhere and it's not working but you keep trying and you're just all frustrated, you're all tensed up because you feel this burden, this compulsion to change that person. Listen, my, my kids are, Tim's is 37 and Joel turns 35, I think, in, uh, in December. Hey, the bus has left the station. They are. I mean, I did my best for 20 years. And, 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 and I did my very best and got them an education and loved them and cared about them. But I'm telling you, they are not my job anymore. Some of you don't believe that. I'm telling you, it's liberating. It's free. I watch them how they're raising our kids and gra- our grandkids and all that. And, you know, we pray for them. And Karen and I, of course, talk about them all the time and uh, how they're doing things and all that. But I'm telling you, we're just so liberated and free because I've discovered at my stage of life, it's always foolish to try to do the impossible. It's foolish to try to do the impossible. And it's impossible to change other people. I got a Tacoma pickup that I love, and I love my Tacoma pickup, and just, you know, I believe if Jesus was living on the earth today, he would drive a Tacoma pickup. But when my Tacoma pickup needs working on, I never pull it under the shade tree and try to work on it. I never do that because I'm a moron. I don't know how to fix that thing. I take it to Pohanka, and they take it in there, and I sit in the waiting room, and I sip coffee, and I let the experts take care of that. So when you have somebody in your world that you're frustrated with because they're not the way you want them to be, take them to Jesus, and let Jesus work on them and you sit on your couch and you sip coffee. Say the thing, it is not my job to change other people. It's impossible anyhow. So why would I try? That doesn't mean you don't pray for them. I pray for my kids just about every day. I mean, I probably miss a day every once in a while, but I, I, I walked down the road yesterday, took a three-mile walk, and I'm praying for Tim, and I'm praying for Jessica, and I'm praying for Jack, and 
My little grandson, Jack's getting dedicated to the Lord this morning as I'm speaking. He's at the Rehoboth getting dedicated. And I pray for Jack and I pray for Willow. And I pray for uh, Joel and Stacy and Norrin and Nixon. And I pray for them. I take them to the Lord. But when I go to their house, I don't get in their stuff. I'm not getting into all that. It's their deal. And I've already said my piece a long, long time ago. And, and, you know, I think there's a place, if you marry married to somebody, that things aren't good, and you've got to have some tough talks, but at some point after the talking and after the counseling, you have to say, okay, I'm giving them to Jesus. And by the way, if you married an extrovert, God's probably not going to make them an introvert anyhow. Last thing that we get mad about. Last thing we get mad about is we get mad about suffering in the world. I've had so many conversations over the years about people that are so upset about suffering in the world. If there is a God, if there is a loving God, if there is a caring God, why is there car accidents? Why is there cancer? Why is there disease? Why is there war? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And it's a common, common question that we have as we deal with people. I had that conversation so many times. And how you answer that has a little bit to do with where they are. Because sometimes an answer to the head will not satisfy the heart. And sometimes people can't be helped by something in their head. They need to hear something in their heart. But here's, here's, the, here's the theological reason why they're suffering in the world. God created a perfect world. God created a world that was perfect. Everything was perfect. And here's the thing. We all have inside of us the memory of Eden. We all remember deep in our psyche that this world's supposed to be perfect with no suffering. We remember that deeply. And every time there's a car accident and every time there's somebody killed in a hurricane, we think it shouldn't be that way. That's the response that we have in our hearts because the world was created perfectly. The Bible says this, that when Adam sinned, the day he sinned, death came into the world and suffering came into the world. So the world began perfectly, will end perfectly, but in the middle we live in what's called in the book of Revelation chapter 20, the old order of things. So the theological answer to that is, I know every time... There's a war every time there's suffering. I know that this world was not created that way, but because of man's sin, this world is in a fallen state. And we all feel it. So when we were living in Pensacola, I've told you guys this story before. My wife Karen, she had a, she had a dream one night. And I, think it was, I don't think it was from the Lord. I think it was too much pepperoni. I think she had this dream. And the dream was we lived on V Street, Pensacola, in a section called Brownville, Brandsville. And in front of our house on V Street, she was out in her dream. She was in, uh, in, on the street, on V Street, in her dream. And there was this black, raging bull chasing her. And she's scared, and she's running from that bull. And the bull is ferocious, and she's running from the bull. She runs up. On the porch of our house, we had this big porch on the front of our house. She runs up on the porch, and the bull comes up behind her. 
and she goes in the house to get away from the bull, and she closes the door, and she looks through the window, and the bull turns into a kitten. So she says, wow, a little purring kitten. So in her dream, she opens the door, she lets the kitten in, and the kitten turns back into a bull and wrecks the house. When Adam sinned, he opened the door, and he let what seemed to be innocent in, and it turned into evil and destroyed the world. That's what the Bible teaches. But it says, there's a new heaven. Everybody say, new heaven. And a new earth. And in the new heaven, there will be no sea. Have you ever read that? Revelation 22, the new heaven, there'll be no sea. How many like the ocean? How many like the beach? That's why you live here, right? Do you like the beach? Raise your hand if you like the beach. You're not here for the chicken houses. You love the beach, right? <laughs> but it says there's no, there's no sea in heaven. There's no beach in heaven. Karen read that one day. She's a beach person. That deeply worried her. The reason it says no sea is because in the ancient world, the sea represented uncertainty and suffering and pain. They were afraid of the sea. They believed that the sea had monsters in it. They believed that the sea was uncertain. They had many a story of people getting a boat, going off to sea, and never survive the trip. So the sea represented danger. And it says in heaven there will be no sea be no danger. And then it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying. Listen to this, for the old order of things has passed away. Say this with me, it's going to be perfect and good again. Isaiah has all that. I don't have time to do all that. What I tell people when they're angry about the suffering in the world, I tell them that, but that doesn't usually help them if they're in pain. Then I tell them this. Jesus, the Son of God who came to save me and He came to save you, the Son of God that loves you more than you can imagine, the Son of God that loves me, came, stepped into this world of pain and suffered the pain of that we experience. And the Bible says in Hebrews, he's a faithful and perfect high priest because he's been made perfect through suffering. Jesus has been made perfect through suffering because he has suffered just the way we have. He stood at his friend's grave side and wept because his friend died. Jesus is a perfect high priest because he's a high priest that understands. How many remember where you were when nine... 9-11 happened. How many remember where you were, what you were doing? Uh, it's been 17 years. You still remember, right? Remember perfectly. So what happened at 9-11 was that one of the worst of tragedies ever happened to America, and the Twin Towers came down. I was standing in that, where the old building was, standing there with staff at a staff meeting. TVs rolled in there, and we watched those towers come down, and I'll never forget that. And it was horrible. It was suffering. Pain. I was at New York City a few years ago at the U.S. Open standing in line, and in front of me there was a guy that was in one of the towers, and he told me about his story about how he got out. 
Two days after 9-11, there was a there was a worker, a guy named Frank, from a local union that was part of the rescue operation one night on September 13th. And he's, uh, there was a certain Zone 6 he was working in. He was trying to recover. They were trying to recover uh, survivors. They found no survivors. They found, uh, I think he said, eight bodies that night. Very emotional experience. And he looks into a section that he's working on, into a pit, a low, sunken area. And out of the debris... He saw a cross. His story was, so when he saw the cross, he fell on his knees, and he felt God's peace. And then he talked to a priest, and the priest called uh, Mayor Giuliani, and they got that cross excavated. Here's a picture of the cross in the debris that he saw. That picture illustrates what God has done through Jesus. The cross means that Jesus stepped into our pain and into our world. And so we can go to a Savior in this old order of things that has experienced our pain, experienced our death, experienced our struggles, and we can know that the one who died for us understands and loves us perfectly. They took that cross, they put it on a beam uh, there. We have another picture of that, and uh, there's, that's, it, it's now in the uh, World Trade Center Memorial there. But that cross represents Jesus stepping into our world of pain. Say this with me. Jesus stepped in to the suffering of humankind. So Karen and I were, Friday, we're out on our date, we ate a green turtle. After we got done eating a green turtle, uh, I'm doing these little video, these little two-minute devotional videos that a lot of you are watching, and I appreciate your wonderful feedback on these little videos. So I decided to, to tape a video there over where the beach was, and so we walked to the corner. We're sitting on the balcony. We walked to the corner there and you know, got in the sun, and she did this little video clip, and I recorded this message that you'll see this week on my little devotional video about God creating and the world and God created the order of things and all that. So we got done uh, taping the video, and we're walking uh, back to go out the door there, and we come to this couple, this uh, couple from, uh, from Richmond, uh, and, and, and they, they're an African-American couple, and they said, they said, that was wonderful. And we didn't want anybody, we weren't trying to get anybody to hear, you know, we were kind of like off to the side. That was wonderful. And so they, she said, we love Jesus too, we are Christians. And I'm telling you what, she started praising the Lord right there in front of the green turtle, and we're like, we had church service right there. How many of you can have church service right on the green turtle there? And we got talking to them, and they were there for the jazz festival, and they want to know where the church was. And I said, "Well, you should go to the Rehoboth Church. You, you know, live down. You're going to be down here for the weekend." And she said, "You know, we got a we got a little girl. She's 21 years old, and she has Down syndrome." And the lady told me she's reading a book. Showed me the book she was reading about that. And she said, "We love this little girl." We've centered so much of our life around her, and we've prayed for and loved on her and ministered to her. And she, I said, what's her name? And I thought she said Gloria. 
And I said, Gloria, my ears aren't great. I said, Gloria? She said, no, we call her Adoria. Adoria. We adore her. And so we just, we, just, we just took hands right there on the green turtle, and we prayed, and a lot of people looking around, you know. But what I loved about that encounter with that couple was, was how full of joy they were and how full of Jesus they were. And they were walking had walked through some painful things, but they still loved Jesus in the midst of that because they saw that God was using them even in the midst of that which was not perfect. Say this with me as we conclude today. This world is not perfect. My world is not perfect. But I don't have to be angry because God has a plan even in the pain of this world. Would you lift your hands to the Lord right now? Let the Holy Spirit minister to you and touch you. And uh, some of you, the Lord's just saying, just not, not to be burdened with trying to change people anymore. You're going to go out this week and have a better week because you're not going to have to be all worked up about changing people. Some of you just are just needing to lean into God's sovereignty and uh, recognize that your ideal view of the world is not realistic for this season of history. So we thank you, God, for helping us. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your plan for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose and plan for all of us as we move into the future. We, we thank you for your love and your mercy in Jesus' name. And we pray that you'll deliver us from our anger and our frustration that this week will not be filled with anger, but will be filled with your peace in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Love you guys. Appreciate you. Give the Lord a praise offering this morning.